All right, you happily miserable accursed, it's Curse of Politics time. I'm David Hurley, and here with me, they're always soft and kindly and tender faces, smiling back at me from their Zoom boxes, is our political panel, Scott Reed, Corey Tonight, and Jordan Leichnitz. All right, here's today's rundown. We're going to dive back into David Johnson, China interference, election interference story from the angle of, is this actually doing any damage to the government? Then it's back to Alberta to pick through the election aftermath there. And our cursed clipping is all about my most favorite topic, by-elections. It's uh, Brian, I'm Brian, I hope to God I'm saying your name right. Brian Pasifume's piece at ocanada.com or the National Post on the Manitoba by-elections and how Pierre Polyev is handling the Maxine Bernier factor. Finally, the great Gordon Pinsent brings this shindig to a close with our hey yous. So how are you three doing, you guys? I've been fighting a cold. I'm fucking miserable. A cold, of all things. Well, I'm, I'm getting ready for the uh, uh, for the press gallery dinner. I was uh, out shopping, buying fancy Italian suits and shoes to uh, to try to impress the gallery with my, my suave style, I guess. Corey tonight, man wow. of the people. <laughs> yes, exactly. Who's your date? Uh, oh, we're doing a, it's not a thruple, it's a quadruple, uh, going with, uh, Kathleen Monk, uh, uh, the very handsome and debonair Scott Reed and, uh, Vashi Capellas. Oh, her fake curse of politics panel. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, That's exactly. what she calls it. Uh, right yeah. on air. Um, yeah, we're, and yeah, meanwhile, I'll be showing up in like, you know, uh, sort of. Simpsons t-shirt and flip-flops. Uh, and I, I've, I was thinking, you know what? The very first press gallery dinner I went to was in 1989. John Turner was Who are still you going with? with? Hugh Windsor? I'm going with... Oh, that's right. You're part of that group. That's yeah, right. Yeah, no, yeah. Uh, Scott and I are the same-sex yeah. couple. We're going that's together. Right. That's and, right. Um, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. It's good I can't wait to see the prom relationship photos. I've had in decades. No. You're not going, Jordan? I, I am not. I have, uh, have the small humans, so... Other other less glamorous plans. Wow. You have no idea how important you can feel in that event. <laughs> Are you going, David? That's how David, you, should, you should be coming, David. Uh, I, I, was, I was invited. I don't want to say I wasn't invited. I was invited, but I can't make it, unfortunately. Mm. I can't make it. And I usually get really drunk at that event and do things that I wish I hadn't done. Well, right? as bad, like better or worse than uh, uh, Liz May? Because she's the high watermark. Yeah, it's hard to top. Yeah, that. better than I've, I've never been as bad as Elizabeth May. I have. No. I've. I've. I've absolutely lapped the Liz May performance in terms of public drunkenness. <laughs> you have to be hooked off stage. That's the. I once had to do question period the morning after the press gallery dinner. I never went home. I never slept except for the commercial breaks while taping question period live i thought i was gonna die greatest greatest press gallery dinner of all time greatest stunt of the press gallery dinner of all time i just want to put in a uh uh props to my uh, business partner scott feschuk feschuk's working in the pmo paul's prime minister we have us you know like uh, the amount of i don't know if you guys went through this Corey, but the amount of kvetching and energy and jordan with uh you guys like i i just like it it absorbed it, it absorbed more time than sponsorship, and it was more anxiety-inducing, actually, right? Uh, preparing for that, getting the speech ready, and trying to put gags in. And, of course, Feshtek and I are, like, writing jokes for hours and hours and days and days. But then 
even as the prime minister is torturing us by going, I don't understand this joke. This joke isn't funny. I'm not going to say the word fuck. Get out of here. All kinds of stuff like this. He, Festchuk slips off to Montreal and the night of the press gallery dinner, unbeknownst to any of us. And so the, the night of the press gallery dinner, all of a sudden, the voice of God comes on, unscripted, not on the uh, show flow. No one knows what's going to happen. Big screen drops. Governor General Seal, ladies and gentlemen, the Right Honorable Brian Mulroney. And he opens up, looks out at the crowd. Peter C. Newman's book, the Mulroney tapes had just come out, which is a horrifyingly indiscreet screw job on Mulroney. Mulroney looks upon the crowd, pulls out that big velvet voice and says, Good evening. I just wanted to say, Peter C. Newman, go fuck yourself. <laughs> and the screen rolled up and off he went and no one knew it was coming total mic drop all arranged by Feshuk didn't tell the prime minister didn't tell us it was great oh that's ladies funny. and gentlemen governor general your excellencies fellow parliamentarians honored guests from the peter c newman go fuck yourself it was, it was that's priceless. it was such a splendid moment <laughs> Well, the, the the poor the poor cousin of that is a spring fling in uh, uh, the Ontario legislature, and uh, it was quite funny watching uh, Ford deliver his speech because, like, you know, he he'd been convinced by his staff to tell a bunch of jokes, and just in the speech, he'd say, "Oh no, I'm not, I'm not doing this one. Sorry, <laughs> I hate that." And he'd do one. He's like, "Hey, I didn't write this. I'm, not, I'm just I'm just reading this. Like, no, no, this this next one. No, sorry, I'm not doing that one either." Paul would do that too. It would make Fastjack want to crawl onto the stage and stab him. It was unbelievable. Yeah, I don't think yeah. you're ever gonna top Jack Layton singing "Party for Sale or Rent." <laughs> that yeah, was that's good. good. That was a solid yeah. one. Maybe yeah. we could uh, have a redux. It took a guitar to make Leighton funny. <laughs> he was well, a pretty good musician. <laughs> yeah, but he—he he not good at the most important thing you have to do with those things, which is laugh at yourself, make yeah, fun of yourself. That's really that's really right. the key. Absolutely. Mm. Yep. All well, right. We'll see what Chinese we'll see election goes. interference. You want to talk about it or not? No, God, don't. Who doesn't? I don't want to, but we're going to anyway. So let's just get it over with, please. Mercy Jesus. killing here. <laughs> All right. So, fuck you guys. Um, the liberals have played all their cards now, and they look like shit. Mm-hmm. Singh is torqued into a goddamn pretzel, leading the demand for Johnson to step down and a public inquiry, and saying he can't use his card of forcing an election because he can't trust an election until we get to the bottom of this, which is all pretty funny. I that think is Paul- an awesome, awesome oh, right. yeah, little I asterisk. Nice lipstick on that particular pic. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a beautiful shade. It's a beautiful. Shade oh yeah. yeah. Um, it's still a pig, though. But okay, definitely a pig. I, I, I mean, there's Paul- a flaw in that logic, right? If we can't have an election <laughs> until we're satisfied that elections can be safely held, if I'm the prime minister. I'm thinking to myself, I see an opportunity. Yeah, no kidding. yeah. Let's just uh, declare. Commercial law in a one-party state. Like, Thank it's, God we don't live in a place of absolute logic. <laughs> yeah, I think Polyev's over the top because he's effectively accusing Trudeau of being a traitor and conspiring with the Chinese, and I don't really think that that is tracking. Um, day after day news coverage, and what's in the middle of this thing anyway? Nobody thinks that the Trudeau government is conspiring with the Chinese government to subvert election results. Nobody is alleging that the last election was materially affected 
by Chinese interference, interference. So what's its importance? And Canadians seem to be asking that question too, as they're aggressively tuning this story out. There was a Leger poll. And first of all, it said that the party standing numbers were Liberals 33, Conservatives 31. So that's a pretty important context um, for this, with the Conservatives having a 31 number at this point in the game. And um, and the Liberals hanging in at 33. Um, but more to the point, it said that about 13% of Canadians thought that Johnson and his report were credible. About 16% of Canadians thought that Johnson and his report were not credible. And about 70% of Canadians had either never heard of the report or had no opinion about whether Johnson was credible. Right? My partner Alex has been out in Atlanta, Canada, doing focus groups, talking to people, and he's saying they just don't have the bandwidth to think about this issue, right? Their ER is closed, they can't pay the rent or the mortgage, and they're having trouble feeding their family. They're not interested in this. If you want to talk to them about politics, don't talk to them about this. So, Scott, where does this go? Um, it limps out into the summer. Uh, the parties all seem to be caught up in... Uh, kind of irrational passion about this. So it's gripped the House of Commons. If you mount those arguments in front of parliamentarians, I did so uh, on Saturday afternoon of this past weekend, they look at you like you're a three-headed dog and say, no, no, no. This is a fundamental to our democracy, right? If they're a liberal, they say these goddamn conservatives are playing with people's fundamental faith in our institutions and we must meet them in main street and beat them down the conservatives say these guys are getting away with the crime of the century it's a disgrace the ndp say we got to say something about this that keeps us in the news and i think until the house rises the power of the house question period all that dynamic like its own little kind of palace logic powers this issue forward and then they all get out in the summer and they'll take to you know the streets and the corners and the community and they'll realize people don't want to talk about this and so they'll have to learn to start talking about what really matters again not that this isn't an important issue it's a classic more issue people of- than normal showing up for the hot dog roast because they need a fucking hot dog <laughs> it's about politics, man, right? And it's about election, right? So, like, it means I always need a hot dog, David. So let's not be let's not I, be I, I fucking, talking shit about hot dogs. Here. I fucking love hot dogs. Um, I love hot dogs a whole lot more than talking about this goddamn issue. So the bottom line, I think, is that like it it is losing its political salience, and I think that you know the parties will play this out. And maybe they'll try to hold some committee hearings over the over the course of the summer. Those things will go, uh, barring a, a monstrous episode, they'll go largely uh, unnoticed. And so people will have to do, you know, they'll have to they'll have to straighten out their their sextant. They'll have to, you know, get their compass pointed correctly again. And that's what I think will happen almost under its own steam. Jordan, I was. Uh... I was on cross-country checkup yesterday, not to brag. You know, these other two guys have their own show that they're on. But 
President uh, Crosby, check it for saying, Ian Hanna-Mansing asked me, what would you advise the government to do? Casey's, the government Casey, I, I like a long-distance dedication. <laughs> I'm a seven-year-old girl, and my dad just came back from the war. Thank you for that call, Beatrice. He said if the Prime Minister's office called, and that was funny enough, but then he said, what would your advice to them be? And I found myself, perhaps to my own surprise, saying, you know, at this point, probably just plow ahead. You've made a choice. You've cast your thing in. I don't see any point, uh, given the way the public is reacting to this, in reversing yourself now and firing Johnson and calling a public inquiry. Given the way the cards have been played, I thought probably their best play now is to just forge ahead. Yeah, I don't disagree, which... uh might hide the fact that I, I think their management to date has been garbage. So I just want to be really clear about that. <laughs> but being where they are, yes, I think I think that they have some protection in the fact that this doesn't seem to be resonating at all with Canadians and they can just let it ride through the summer. You'll always have another opportunity if Johnson gets to the end of his hearings and this thing is somehow still alive. They can always revisit it then. But uh, it does seem that they have correctly betted on just low salience. Uh, but there is, you know, as we've talked about before, there is still more that they could be doing to look less reactive and more proactive on this. And while the file is obviously not immediately energizing voters, for sure there's there's the risk of long-term damage if you're continually being punched in the face in the media for six months in a row on this. So I think it's to their benefit to look at some of the other things that we've suggested or others have suggested, uh, you know, things like bringing forward the registry, not just a consultation, but like actually get going on the registry, look at some criminal offenses around foreign interference that don't exist. Like there's all kinds of things that they can do. And I saw that they did take some action against the Chinese police stations that uh, were operating in Canada. But again, like none of this has really been been presented as a response to what is going on, which is a, a problem. There's not really a, there's not a story there about what action the government is taking on it. But I think more than anything, just to speak to what Scott was saying, and, and certainly my conversations with other people have gone pretty much along the same lines. This is like a classic example of what my, uh, my war room friend Scott used to always write up on our uh, whiteboard, which is that important does not equal useful. And there's often a lot of confusion about that on Parliament Hill. These, this can be an important issue that has absolutely zero political utility. And I think that for a variety of reasons, a different reason for each party, that is the case for this issue. And they would all be best to move off of it quickly. Um, but I hope we'll also take a moment to just think about how ridiculous it is that Johnson hired Navigator. Can we talk about that for a minute? Can we talk about we can hiring? talk about that for a minute? But first, okay. first I want to ask you. Some, first, I want to ask you a follow up, though. Yeah. Before I get to Corey, I want to ask you a follow up, which is, you know, Polyev is running as a populist, and he does appear generally to have his ear pretty close to the ground in terms of what people are thinking about out there. So, assuming that he and his team are not stupid, which we know that they are not, why do they continue to pound away at this, given what we've just been discussing? Because I think the. This, the narrative of it is catnip to, to the Conservative caucus. It tells a story that they believe truly, they believe the Liberals are corrupt, 
Uh, they believe in the threat of Chinese foreign interference. And it just, it ticks so many boxes for them internally that they cannot resist the, they cannot resist going after it. And I think, I think that even though they may understand that this is not moving voters, for them, this is also an issue of principle. And they, they feel like letting it go is letting the government off scot-free. So I think it's going to be really hard for actually, for, any of the parties to walk their caucuses back from that. And some of that also just has to do with where we are in the parliamentary cycle. I think we can all agree that this point in June is, is the working definition of hell in, <laughs> in caucuses and like people like inhibitions are just lower. People want to go after the shiny story. And I think that that's a lot of what's happening here. This is not a moment where there's great self-reflection on the part of, uh, of MPs gathered in a group. And I think for the conservatives, because it does tell that story that they believe and is and is an issue of principle that they believe that they are in the right on, they're going to continue dogging on it. Corey, you know, the, you, know, you and I both feel the same way about our enthusiasm about this, this issue um, and how important it is politically or not. But, you know, I mean, I have this belief that governments the whole time they're in office are uh, steadily building a wall that's going to ultimately defeat them and isolate them from the electorate. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is probably a brick or two on that on that wall. I mean, how do you see it at the end of the day? Is this an issue that's going to have burned hot in Ottawa, but come and gone, leaving no political trace? Or is there some lingering political impact from this event? Where I think we're going to, I think there can be a lingering political impact, but where I think it's going to play out is in in the election itself. Like, what I would be trying to do is, uh, well, probably I'd I'd fire Johnson, but then use that as an excuse to not hold these public hearings because I don't think they're going to do anything except inflame things further and distract things further. So I, I would use that as an opportunity to uh, take this mandate that uh, the Johnson gave himself. Uh, which is also wildly inappropriate in my mind, uh, and uh, and just shut it down, and and then move on to exactly what Jordan talked about, which is is taking some some you know concrete actions, foreign agent registry, obviously, uh, you know some high profile busts of the of the uh, communist uh, party. Uh, police stations in various locales across the country. Shut that shit down as quickly as you can, and in as high-profile way as you can. So you're you're generating headlines not on you know uh, things in the rearview mirror, but but things that you're seeing out the windshield of the car. So I, I would do that. But where I think it's going to come and bite them if they're not uh, seen as doing that is in the general election itself, because uh, as sure as the sun rises in the morning, there are going to be additional efforts. Uh, either by China or Russia or both, uh, to influence the next election campaign through various ham-fisted, uh, ridiculous, and and ultimately ineffective things. Uh, you know, whether it's uh, bots on Twitter or whether it's uh, AI-generated uh, fake news stories or deep fake videos or whatever the hell else is going to come, uh, or whether it's uh, stuff on like WeChat where they're where they're pushing uh, uh, communist propaganda and trying to mobilize uh, uh, or threaten Chinese Canadians into voting for one party or not voting for another. And those those examples are going to play out in real time during an election campaign, and the media is going to chase after them, I believe. And I think opposition candidates that are targeted by this stuff are going to raise the alarm bell, and they're going to spend a chunk of the campaign 
talking about this issue instead of framing their ballot choice. And so I, I think that's where it's going to have legitimacy. It's, it's certainly in all of the polling and all the anecdotal evidence, whether it's through, uh, through focus testing or whether it's through just talking to people uh, in your community. I think, you know, Scott's bang on there. People are going to go back and, and find out what, what the data shows, that this is not resonating generally with the electorate. But, you know, um, but if it's going to play a role, it'll be in the election campaign itself. CapEx. Is everyone familiar with this abbreviation? I was tempted to say a brief right there. I can't deny it. Well, CapEx is short for capital expenditure, defined as investments a company makes into long-term assets. But you know what CapEx really is, Hurley-Burleyites? It's like Toto pulling the curtain back on what's really important to that company. Because invariably, companies put their money where their values are. So let's talk about that. Last week here, I was recounting how our presenting sponsor, TELUS, has been investing with social purpose in advancing our technology capabilities and the way Canadians live and connect since their inception. The latest headline, over the next five years, TELUS is putting over $81 billion into new infrastructure, operations, and spectrum in communities, urban and rural, right across the country. When you add it all up since the millennium, they've invested over $239 billion, $239 billion in their world-leading wireless and pure fiber networks and the infrastructure and operations that surround it. Okay, so let's put a pause on all the gigantic numbers and try to go deeper. These are transformational investments TELUS makes, improving the way we live community by community as they create opportunity based on what we value as a collective how we modernize our healthcare and get better access to it, how we make our food supply more sustainable and make the planet healthier in the process, how we can learn from anywhere and do business with the world from even the smallest corners of the country. Like I said before, Hurley Burleyites, a Canadian company putting their money where their values are in the well-being of our people and the systems that support it. Aren't those the kind of investments we should be leaning into? There's more to this story at telus.com. All right, I got a skill testing question for you. Go ahead, Scott. Go ahead. Can I add one quick last thought? Because I think, just to be fair, I think it's worthwhile to note that if we were in the PMO, we'd be listening to this podcast. Although if we were in the PMO, we wouldn't be listening to this podcast because we'd have better things to do. But if we were listening to this podcast, we'd say in particular, right, the piss your pants pair of Hurley and Reed, right, were saying just a couple weeks ago, oh my God, you got to call a public inquiry, you're on fucking fire, you got to learn, you got to roll around, buy some asbestos, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. And now we're on here saying, no, this fucking matters, nobody cares, it's not engaging. And I would just say to that, that's fine. But, and this I think may also have some insight to your question to Jordan about why the conservatives are harping on it. Just because you don't see the sundial moving doesn't mean night ain't coming. And so, like, there's no excuse for being shitty at anything. And just because the polls haven't shown that this is killing you right now doesn't mean, like, okay, therefore, it didn't matter if we were good or not good. It didn't matter if we fumbled this issue from February through to today. Um, it hasn't caused us any harm. I'm not so sure, right? It's at minimum kept you from focusing on economic issues that might have gained you some ground. It's kept you from focusing on a range of other issues. It's made you look defensive. It is adding bricks to the wall. You feel so defensive, so incumbent. And I think maybe one of the logics for the conservatives are, we got plenty of time to get back to the economy. 
But let's let's just milk this thing, keep the liberals off their game, keep them away from what matters most. And people who are mad about this are going to be motivated to vote. The liberal vote that isn't uh, caring about this isn't going to be motivated to vote for the liberals by this. So net gain for us, and we can afford to do this. You know, let's let's take a, let's draw some blood if we can. But, you know, we'll get back to the economy in the summer. There's an opportunity cost, though, in terms of of doing that, if you're the conservatives like. I agree. uh, I agree with that. When when you look at those those Leger numbers and I don't want to read too much into one poll, but, you know, there's there's some reasons to be a bit concerned about that, that, you know, when when Polyev has been focused on the on the economy, he has been going up. Like quite consistently, yep. and when they get a, when they get a few weeks of focused on those, you know, bread and butter issues that uh, are really you know affecting people's daily lives, uh, they're really alone on the playing field. I think in terms of um, uh, a clear and coherent message, like you know, I think Singh's had some days where he's you know gone after grocery barons and stuff like that, where he scored some points. But uh, I think you know, for the most part. Uh, all of the all of the wins in in terms of speaking to that portion of the electric which electorate which is very sizable have been going to to Polyev. So you know every day that he's talking Chinese electoral interference uh, or his caucus is leading in QP with it. It's another day where you're not uh, putting those you know, proven winner issues in the window. And uh, I think if he gets back to a you know to to that economic narrative and and talking about those bread and butter issues. He's gonna gonna be rewarded by the electorate for it. Well, it's a you know, thirty one in Leger. Let's just be clear for a government, for an opposition party against a government uh, that has been in office for seven almost eight years, um, and is considered by most people to be tired and looking like it's ripe to be defeated. For the leading opposition party to be a thirty one is an historically shitty number. Well, yeah, but like, where, where, where are the votes that he needs to gain? Like, I, I think, you know, Quebec is a, a waste of time for the Conservatives. It's a giant distraction. You know, I'm, I'm four square behind Jenny Byrne in terms of the the thought process on 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 that. Um, you know, where I think their challenges are are largely in Ontario and. Uh, uh, and there, you know, Polyev has has you know shown some some real strength in life in parts of southwestern Ontario with with union workers, etc. Those are all things to be building on, but he's still tracking you know seven, eight, nine points back from where Ford is, and which which voters are, is he really missing from that electoral coalition? Not that his is going to be the same as Ford's. It's a different politician. It's going to look different for sure, but it's largely with female voters, and so that comes back to the. You know, I think two things: one, relevancy of the topics, and two, the tone. And I, I think if he can get get back on the relevant topics, which is what you know pertains to this Chinese electoral uh, interference uh, stuff, then he's halfway there. And the tone part is, you know, it's just discipline and dedication, you know, towards uh, changing that. And and you know, that's something that you know you do have control over. These aren't things that are outside your control. All right, I got a skill testing question for all of you. Bang the buzzer if you've gotten the one that's got the answer to this. How does Jagmeet Singh extricate himself from his position? Who knows the answer to this? Oh, me, it's Jordan time. Jordan does. He already told us. <laughs> <laughs> He's, it's, uh, you know, 
Well, it's like uh, <laughs> NATO said to the Taliban, you know, you have our, our uh, Taliban said to NATO, you have the watches, but we have the time. He just has to wait. Like, yeah. you know, the, well, the, this issue will will shift. And I think as we've just predicted, the temperature will drop over the summer. Although I think it's also worth considering and talking about how much of an X factor Johnston himself is in this as he directs these hearings in whatever way he wants to. And whatever other things he's up to. Like, I think that there's a possibility that he could create his own new distractions in this. But I think I think Singh just waits and hopefully takes the summer to pivot back onto more favorable economic issues and moves on. Like, Wait, the- wait, wait. There's a better issue. There's a better answer. And you gave it to us, Jordan. I've been quoting it all week long. I think it's really smart. I think that Singh stands up over the course of the summer and he says... I saw you were tweeting about dental care and other things, Prime Minister. Couldn't agree with you more. The CNS agreement has done the job, and therefore it's time to negotiate a new one. We need an update to this contract. I'm like Cole Caulfield. I want an extension, and I think that's the place for them to go. Renegotiate the CNS agreement and say, listen, if you want to remain alive, we're going to have to figure out some new items. And don't make it all about, oh, I want to bring the government down. You make it all about, well, I'm all about getting things done, so I got a new list of things I want to get done. Squeeze them. Squeeze them by the scrotum. Make them bleed. Make them it's, give you more I and then you give yourself a new raison d'etre that you get off of far, the back foot of well why aren't you bringing the government down yeah that's by far the best thing that they should be looking to do into the fall for sure and, and i think that the reason that it's so strong is not only because it gives them a longer time in this position when when nobody particularly is in favor of an election right now but also because it lets Singh position himself as propositional and that's really going to be the best place for him as prepositional like an if? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah, well, it's so the first the rule. Of, it's like like the answer for Singh is like the first rule of holes. You know, when you're in a hole and you want to get out, rule number one, stop digging. So just shut the fuck up about it would be, you know, step one. Uh, you know, and I, I think the stuff around an extension of the of the agreement with the liberals makes a lot of sense. That, that'll keep him in the headlines, but in a way where he can control that narrative for sure. Okay, one last question on this, and I hate to actually bring this up because Jamie Watts, a friend of mine, but news that David Johnson had hired Navigator, a consulting firm, uh, to provide uh, counsel and advice um, when he took over the job. Is this uh, a nothing burger or is this oxygen for this story this week? I got to say, you know, I always kind of chuckle to myself when I see people taking a run at Navigator around representing people who are in deep shit. Uh, you know, when you're running a crisis comms business, guess what all of your clients are? They're all people who are in deep shit and yeah. you're trying to get them out. Yeah, but this is the give, exact you, problem. You give them if advice. You're, if you're you know, not in deep shit, why are you hiring Navigator? And so the well, problem, like, they do, the, all, they do a lot the, of This is no shade on Navigator. This is, this is shade on Johnson for, ha- for, for making that move. Like, it's reasonable to have contracted out communications assistance if you're him, but the optics of well, hiring. They're, they're, the, they're, they're the number one great. firm. They're the number one firm in the country offering those services. Sure. So the fact that they're getting high profile clients like that is is really just a sign of their existing market position. And and the fact that he would choose them is uh, not surprising. Like, look, you know, he could have hired you know uh, national public relations or someone else too. And 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 you know what what would the point be? Uh, you know, it's I, I just I think it's. Uh, just more dust in the air around this. I don't think it's meaningful. 
I think it's just so blindingly unself-aware that it continues the trend that we've seen. Yeah, Jamie's a friend of mine, and I agree with everything Corey said about when people get themselves into a clutter about, oh, I saw the navigator get hired as though, like, my mom is sitting around going, well, that puts a whole new shave on this issue for me. Like, I mean, we just sat and said that this thing didn't matter. Now, like, you know, Jamie's presence on the file is going to, like, cause people to go, well, God damn it, call an election. I want to vote. Well, well, um, well, we've, we've all experienced that kind of stuff. There's a, yeah. that is all about the consultant class and the Ottawa class and the, you know, and, and you got to take all of that shit as being nine tenths jealousy and uh, uh, and sort of normal intramural industry rivalries playing themselves out in the media. I just I would say that I think hiring anybody shows uh, something of a continued course of poor judgment and poor sense of awareness on the part of Johnson. Um, so it's not so much about Jamie and Navigator. It's just like, why are you hiring? Well, except that they what, have what? a profile. It is kind of about yeah, Jamie and Navigator, not because they're bad people, but because they have a certain profile that would lend oh, itself sure. to a news story. Well, that's, it's going to generate news. I don't yeah. think that news story sticks. I don't think it has much resonance. I think it would be a mistake for the opposition to give a shit about it and go on about it. What I'm saying is the, the, lack, of, the lack of awareness really stems from the decision that I should be hiring anybody uh, if I'm Johnson. Why? Like, you've got, you've got the entire public service. Like, you can go and say, I want three people who are really good and I'm going to second them. Uh, you can get resources. And, you know, by, the real I don't know the whole thing. He shouldn't, he shouldn't be holding these fucking hearings in the first place. Educational management instead of actually solving the problem of foreign interference. That's what it looks well, like. Sure. But, you know, at least they hired a conservative. You know, it could have been worse. They could have hired uh, some some liberal flack from the Trudeau Foundation. That would have been worse. <laughs> you know what? We just spent half an hour talking yeah, about oh an God, issue I, we hate. I, I didn't even God want to talk about it. I just hate myself. I want oh to my take God. myself behind the portable and punch myself in the head. <laughs> you know, we are adrift nowadays on uncertainty. We have less control than we did a few years back. There is no single explanation for it. Maybe Harold McMillan's famous quote, events, dear boy, events. Naturally, the partners in Canada's supply chains abhor uncertainty. Our sponsor, CN, copes by exerting ever more precise planning. Massive sectors of our economy depend utterly on rail to move minerals, fuel, and grain to market, and that's naming just three. The logistical complications involved in coordinating millions of tons of cargo within a North American network that basically runs on one or two sets of tracks are staggering. Good forecasting is crucial. So is data. Anyway, as I said, trying times. But our federal government is not helping. It is implementing a new set of regulations that will allow rail customers, big shipping companies, to dictate cargo scheduling. Under this plan, customers will be able to force railways to hand off cargo to each other, perhaps several times between origin and destination. To be clear, these new rules will not alleviate uncertainty, they will exacerbate uncertainty. Primarily, the government is responding to pressure from grain companies. They argue it will lower Canadian cargo rates, which are already among the lowest in the world. They believe it will mean more profits for the grain sector. Again, though, uncertainty. What about other big sectors? Presumably, they'll be able to start dictating cargo schedules as well. You don't need a doctorate in economics to imagine the kind of chaos that will create. And without question, the costs of all that increased uncertainty will be passed down the line to the consumer, who's already paying more for just about everything. 
CN respectfully submits that the real antidote to uncertainty in our supply chains is not more regulation. It will happen when all players, shippers, receivers, terminals, railways, truckers, everyone, begins to collaborate and coordinate and to share data from each link in the supply chain. There are solutions. The government's plan is not one of them. All right, we have a clipping today. And our clipping is about the upcoming four by-elections, but specifically the one in rural Manitoba. The other three seem like safe seats with no reason to pay much attention. They're all safe seats. They're all safe <laughs> seats, sorry. But there is one thing interesting. Portage Lisger is featuring Maxine Bernier as the candidate for the PPC. And um, uh, Brian Passiuma says has the report. Maxime Bernier is just like Justin Trudeau, Pauly have said, responding to a question about the PPC leader's latest quest for a seat in the House. Both of them have expressed support for Quebec separatism. Both of them would need a map to find Portage or Winkler. Both said they admired China's dictatorship. Both want free trade with China. Both support legalizing hard drugs. And both supported woke policies in the House of Commons, even though they put on a big act outside the House of Commons. In response, Bernier told the National Post that Polyev's words only serve to show how afraid he is about facing a true conservative opponent in Portage Lisker. He can't attack me on PPC principles and policies because he knows they're very popular among his base, he said, accusing Polyev of using buzzwords like woke as a means of attracting views on social media. All he can do is repeat the nonsense about splitting the vote or invent stuff about me being woke that nobody will believe. Jordan, how important is this fight for Polyev and the CPC, and what kind of result do they need or want out of Portage? So, well, I don't want to play into uh, lowering expectations for the Conservatives in Portage Lisgar, because I think that they're doing that well enough themselves. I do think it's significant, because as we've discussed a lot of times here, there is there is a need for Polyev to pull some of those votes back from the PPC at the national level if he wants to create a vote coalition that's going to bring him to power eventually. So there's he is watching out on his right flank, and we can see through a lot of the things that he's been doing that he's tacking that direction uh, maybe more often than he should be in an effort to court them. So look, I don't like Bernie's not going to win here. There's no real chance of that, but he did have 20% in the last, in the last election there, the PPC did. So I think that the important thing to watch will be is, does he hold that or are the conservatives able to pull, pull back from that vote share? Um, And then the other thing that's significant about this is that over the course of the next two weeks, what, if anything, is Polyev doing to appeal to those PPC voters in that riding that might have some ramifications nationally for him? And, you know, we just we touched on this a little bit in our last segment. But I think for me, the thing that I'm most interested in and I'm watching is there does seem to be an increasing tempo of outreaches to uh, to the the further right within his vote coalition and a lot of these things are things that don't make him very attractive to mainstream women. Uh, they don't help with his tone and likability. And I think, you know, we can talk more broadly about some of these other things, but I'm looking, you know, even specifically at the things he's been doing over the last few weeks again on drugs. So I think the challenge of this is that, well, it's an issue that there are some Canadians who disagree with the current liberal uh, approach on it. 
problem is, is that optically what he's doing is he's punching down on all of these issues. He's punching down. He seemed to be punching down. And I think it's a big issue for him. So he's, he's using it to motivate people who are energized on that issue. I think there's some thought that that might be helpful for him in places like Portage Lisgar. We'll see. Uh, but I wonder at what cost towards the voters in the center that he's eventually going to need to be courting as well. You know, by-elections, this is interesting, Jordan. I mean, a by-election is a weird test, Scott, because, uh, you know, it's a perfect place to land a meaningless protest vote. Like, if you wanted, you're not choosing an alternative government. So if you wanted to, I mean, I, I guess what I'm saying is it seems to me more fertile for Bernier in a by-election than in a general. I so think I don't that's know why, right. I don't know if they, you know, why they would be wanting to set this up as any kind of test. Of anything, yeah, I, I I wouldn't either, and I actually don't think it is a test. Um, like in my heart of hearts, like I think if let's say Bernier holds on to his vote from the last election in this in this by election, does that mean that in the general election the PPC is a genuine threat to uh, to the CPC? I don't think it will mean that. I really, I, I'll, I'll be absolutely one hundred percent resistant to say that. And I think that if he drives his vote down to 6%, I'll also be reluctant to believe that Bernier doesn't have the ability to just pop up and still create trouble in some places and in some ways for, for Polyab. So I don't think that it's a test of anything. I don't think the result will resolve anything. I think there might be a slight danger um, for uh, for uh, for Polyab, not so much about what the rest of us see and witness, but just what the Facebook frantics will witness. Like if like it is an opportunity among that group of people who got jazzed up when they saw Polyev saying no turning and marching with a coffee cup with leaders of the convoy um, who are like, okay, I can be comfortable with this guy. But when they, when they see on their weird subreddit fucking crazy land, uh, fucking, you know, shares that, you know, um, Bernier is just pounding and pounding and pounding. So don't trust this guy. I wonder if it corrodes a little bit in that weird sub pocket that they care about. So I think it, I think just having to fight with him is unhelpful probably. Um, but I don't, I don't think it's consequential. I'm not going to believe it's a test of anything. And I'm not going to believe that whether he drives the Bernier vote to nothing or Bernier sails <coughs> like a kite. I don't think kite sail anyway, rises like a kite sails, like a boat, a sail, a um, pirate, Whatever. I'm going to stop the metaphors now. <laughs> Someone throw Scott a life buoy. <laughs> uh, Corey, is there any import to you in the Portage Lisker violation? I don't think it's going to be very material. Like, I, I think what'll be interesting is what voter turnout is in Portage Lisker. Like, I think that the PPC vote's probably more motivated because it's a narrow band of of ideologues. And, you know, but this is a riding that kind of should, it's like 70% conservative. So, you know, the fact that they got 52 last time, despite uh, the PPC getting 21, uh, should tell you everything you need to know about that riding. It's one of the, one of the most, you know, rock-ribbed conservative ridings. Totally, in the Candace Bergen country. did get 70% in yeah, 2019. And, and so, like she, you know, but, yeah, that's where you're going to find that vote. Like, if you look at some of the other ridings in those by-elections, like Winnipeg South Center, the PPC got 2.7 percent. You know, they got 5 percent in Calgary Heritage, uh, uh, a little better in Oxford, but, uh, you know, 10 uh, percent there. But Oxford's probably the the, the, the area, that area of uh, Ontario is 
is where those sentiments are the very highest. So, like, look, if, if voter turnout was really low and the PPC got all their people out because they're a little more motivated, you could even see it go up a little bit there uh, and still not be meaningful when you look at it across the broader electorate. Like, I, I think in a general election campaign, you know, uh, and, you know, everybody comes out like they would in a general, you probably see the PPC vote drop in half. But, you know, you, you might not see that in a by-election because of different levels of motivation. 100%. But, exactly. So all, all of that, you know, the media... And different states. Well, different, yeah. different states. If you want to send a message, right, yeah. Bernie is a it's good all, vehicle to send that. a message, right? Yeah. I just don't think it tells you anything about what's going to happen in a general election campaign. And, That's why I hate you know, by and, and while there's some barking uh, from, from the PPC dogs... Uh, as we've talked about uh, uh, before, half of those people are, you know, leftist placenta eaters. And they're not, uh, you know, the, uh, the other half are, are libertarian assholes who want to privatize the, the sidewalks and, and, and nuclear weapons. But, you know, Bernie is saying... Bring up this placenta thing a lot. Like, on camera, I've heard you mention it off camera a bunch of times or something. Kind of yeah. fucked up well, thing going on with you there. It, it is. It is. It is the perfect embodiment of who these folks are. Like these are people who are 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 anti-vaccination of any kind. They, uh, you know, are in the organic food aisle when they go to the grocery store. Uh, they probably are carrying a yoga mat while they're doing so. Like it, it, these are not people who are going to be voting conservative anytime soon. So when you look at the, the, the PPC just numbers, described most you, of his neighbors in Westboro. Uh, well, I would say you know driving a. a Subaru and and ninety nine percent of chance they're white as well. So like that that's Westboro, right? Like that's but you know that's where you're you're finding some people who are are sympathetic to the PPC. They're never going to vote conservative. Half of the, half of those folks are not conservatives. They're just anti-vax. And you know you find you know anti-vax, anti-pharma sort of a notion on the left and on the right, and it's on the extremities of both. They just come and meet in the middle with. Uh, with the PPC, and you see a sort of this bizarro alliance of of uh, uh, of conspiracy theorists on both sides of a, a polarized electorate. But you know, you're not going to assert. You're not going to honestly assert that it doesn't overwhelmingly draw from a vote pool that might be more inclined to go conservative. I mean, there may be yeah, elements no, I, of the percent eaters, I, I but I would, I would, and say, all right, uh, all right. And, and say, I think that's correct. That, and, and say there's ample evidence of that. Like, look, Ford basically pushed all of these parties down below five percent on the on in the you know right after the pandemic. Like, it's just ended, and sentiment around this stuff was at at, at peak levels. The conservatives who were were you know PPC oriented folks all came in, out and voted for for Ford. Not all of them, but overwhelmingly. Uh, and what you were left with was you know less than six percent. Uh, most ridings, you know, more like two digits, uh, who were who were voting for for you know fringe parties of a PPC like nature. So I think you know if if Ford can do that, what can Polyev do? Polyev. Far better record on those issues for those people than than what Ford had, and Ford was able to bring them back. So, what are the chances Polyev can? I think you know much higher than they were for Ford. So, like I, I don't see this as a you know as a as a great vulnerability for him. We'll see what happens in in a riding like Portage Lisger, but you know as is always the case with by elections, the media and others read way way too much into uh, the results of these things. I'll tell you right now what the outcome is going to be. It's going to be three seats for the conservatives and two for the liberals. And if it's anything other than that, uh, then I don't know what 
what should we lose in this bet? Like, but I don't think there's anybody on on this podcast who would take the bet that's going to be other than uh, you know a, a status quo result because these are five of the most solid ridings uh, in the country for either one party or the other. You think Anna Gainey is safe in NDG? I do. I'm Me? just joking. Yes, of course she is. Um, all right. Is. Let's move to the Alberta election. So, happened last week, as we anticipated in our Monday session, Daniel Smith and the United Conservative Party, as they styled themselves, won. Great deep dive into this on the Hurley Burley with Janet Brown and Jason Markasov. Janet Brown, by the way, called this thing dead fucking on. Dead on. Um, most interesting thing to me um, was Janet saying that the Conservatives UCP won the election in the month before the election, in the month before the writ, with their flurry of announcements and economic activity, and that the NDP in the actual writ period were never in a position to win. That once the UCP had flipped that in the pre-writ, uh, it was never... Um, it, the NDP never had a lead, which kind of contradicts all these breathless TikToks that talk about how Smith's campaign was saved, etc. Because Janet would say it didn't need saving once the campaign was on it. It needed saving three or four months ago, and it got saved. Corey, what's your take? Well, I'm not going to argue with Janet in terms of that outcome, but I'd say the campaign team and the campaign, you know, start working and take control before the actual writ starts. And, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, we'll talk about this in my... Well, we were talking about it, Corey. You were talking about it months ago, how, you know, the guy that was running her campaign was good and he got her on the straight and narrow, got her talking about the right issues. Yeah, I think that's right. And they, they, they backed slowly away from the Sovereignty Act, uh, which was the only fight... Uh, which you could have with the federal government where you were at 25% support from the public instead of 75% support. <laughs> like, and so, you know, when they, when they jettisoned that and, and they moved it back to, uh, to just, transi tra just transition and things like that that were, uh, that were deeply unpopular, and th those are fights where you win 10 times out of 10 if you have them, uh, with the federal government and, and with the Alberta electorate. When they moved back to those things, you know, the numbers started improving, things stabilized. And like, look, I think that the NDP war room were throwing out uh, really good shit to, to disrupt, you know, the uh, UCP's message on an almost daily basis. But I think what you saw Smith being able to do is just saying, like, look, it's going to be some grainy video. This is something that's in the past. I was a radio show host. I, I'm focused on the future and what I'm going to do for Alberta. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to focus on the economy and make sure the energy sector and jobs and on and on. Right. And I think she was able to run a very disciplined campaign. And and I think that started not in, you know, in the first day of the red, that started so, several months before. You know, it's like the six-month lead-in, I would say, is almost uh, as important and, and often more important than uh, than the actual red. So I think, you know, the, this is, a, you know, a victory uh, that's, you know, it's it was not as close as some people, including us, predicted. It was less close than that. Uh, and there was less movement in the polls during the election campaign than I think uh, the media is uh, trying to to pause it. You know, Scott, Scott, you and I, we've loved negative ads in the past and we've used them very effectively. It, it was Browns and Markasov's opinion that the character attacks on Smith lost their um, capacity to motivate at a certain point that they kind of got baked in. Um, 
and that the NDP needed a second front, whether positive or negative, but they needed a second front other than Smith's character. What do you think about that? I, I thought that was right. Um, I, I thought I heard in their conversation, and I enjoyed it a lot, listened to it, um, I thought I heard them sort of shading it slightly to say she needed to go out notly and tell the story of what she was going to do and be proud about what she was going to I'm not as convinced about that portion of it. I think there were other things to do uh, in addition to the negative character attacks on on Danielle Smith. Um, so I, I, I think they did need a second gear. They needed another card to play. I think I said that during the campaign. I felt that way personally. Um, and, I, you know, I think it's an interesting question about our politics in general now which is um you know is there such a thing as history and uh i i think you know yeah i have to be honest and ask yourself it's almost like every candidate yes you do a lot of work and lay groundwork particularly if you're a government because the ability to communicate and connect with people so you do a lot of work in advance of an election campaign but once the writ is dropped, it's almost like nobody has any history. You can be anyone you are. Provided you have been convicted of a sex crime, I'm almost convinced that anybody can be anything they want, provided they run a discipline campaign and they focus on it. I think it's got a lot to do with fragmented media. I think it's got a lot to do with the breakdown of public consensus and our notion of you know, what are, what are established truths that are shared. Um, and so it means that... You can't start by saying, well, we all know that this person is X. And it's like a lot of people will be shaking their heads going, first of all, I don't know who the fuck the person is at all. Second of all, I don't know that that's right about them. And third, you're going to have to tell me, and this is vital, you're going to have to tell me this bad thing you want me to know about this person means something about me and my future. What does that mean for me? What will I lose? Um, because here's the secret. I think you're all fuckers. Right. That's what voters are saying. That's the place that we've driven our politics now. Right. That people think all of them are cynical assholes. Right. So if you're going to say that your opponent is an asshole, you have to say, and that is going to harm you in this particular specific way, because they'll go, oh, OK, but everyone's an asshole. And so, I mean, and that's a hell of a horrible thing. And it takes us into a poli sci class. But, uh, you know, no one has any history. And um, and and I. I just think that's it, it means that not just this campaign, but maybe all campaigns. And I particularly think about running against Polyev. I think about Chantal Hebert's column on the weekend that Polyev is losing this. Uh, I think about your point about, well, he ought to be at better than 31. I, I, I think they need to hammer Polyev, but they will need a second gear also. They, the liberals, the Trudeau liberals will need a second gear um, because Polyev is going to be able to walk into this campaign as an opposition leader and he will have no history. And walking with the convoy probably is something he'll be able to wash off of him, just like, you know, a little speck what of dirt. Was, what was the convoy? Um, hey, Jordan, what stage of grief are you at? Uh, oh, I'm, I'm, uh, we're past the Are you bargaining or in denial? Past the drinking and, and, and uh, <laughs> cruising out of denial into acceptance. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I would be remiss not to note that it, that it was actually, pretty fucking close in in some important ways like 2500 votes uh turning up in the right places and we'd be having a different conversation and i think please the, don't do that don't do that do i've that. done that i've been that's, in campaigns we say like if you take the 199 votes yeah. in seven ridings we could have won that's just stuff that, that number for like the 2006 election themselves. is 2500 yeah. and let me say the 2006 election was not close 
Yeah, I already have enough reasons to if kick they, the stool out from underneath they, me. I don't need those. Like, oh, you only lost by three hundred votes. Yeah. All right, all right, all right. If, 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 we'd more, if, if we'd only gotten more votes, we would have won. Is that what you're saying? Because that's true. Much, Every yeah. fucking election well, right, forever. Actually, so worse, worse so. than that. The exact right twenty five hundred votes. Not oh just yeah, any the exact right. Yeah. yeah. But listen, I think I think in general, uh, I think in general, the campaign was was good. I still think the strong points were really the ground game. And I think that that was borne out by the result uh, in terms of where the NDP was able to pick up seats. Um, I think that the question around, you know, and this is what, what you were talking about, David, uh, with Brown and Mark's office around negativity and like, were they, how, how did they handle that? Did they do it correctly? And I think it's a, it's a fascinating question about what do you do when you have an opponent who is so crazy, right? And and like, what's your best plan of attack? And I think that maybe what the campaign didn't fully appreciate was the degree to which they were going to be fighting a ghost. Because Daniel Smith was so effectively hidden during the campaign, and it worked so well for them that uh that there was almost nothing for for Notley to to push back against. There was no day-to-day -day friction in the campaign in the way that you would usually generate that through your opponent's media availabilities and things like that. There was none of that classical back and forth that would actually generate points of, of movement during the campaign. And I think that that dynamic for me anyways was really new. And, you know, a lot of people have compared this, of course, to Ford and Ontario, but I don't think that's a right comparison because Ford still had a tour you know, like it was, it was certainly more, more limited. His interactions were, were not, uh, you know, what we would sort of classically see, but, but Daniel Smith was like, they were running against the idea of Daniel Smith and they were running against her at her most scripted. And, um, and for voters who had only tuned in during the election, they just saw that one particular slice of her. Keith so Davey I think did that, that with Pierre Trudeau in 1980, by the way, try to find the guy. You can't find yeah. them anywhere, right? Yeah. Mm. Well, I mean, like she was, she was like totally gone, like the last, the last weekend before the vote, like she was just absent, right? And so I think that that, that lack of like those day to day friction points uh, meant that it was harder to find particular and, and create inflection points in the campaign. I think the debate at the end of the day, it wasn't it wasn't helpful for Notley, but I also think that you know, as both Scott and Corey have said, like. That stuff was already happening by then. Uh, a lot of a lot of voters had already maybe made made up their mind about Smith, and then the debate sort of solidified the sense that maybe she wasn't as crazy as they were expecting, because expectations were so low for her going into that. So I think that you know, if the as the campaign and and the folks who worked on it are doing their postmortems, you know, one of the one of the things that they'll be thinking about. And this is maybe where I really I disagree with uh, Brown and Markasov. I don't think it was that they weren't putting up putting out enough positive proactive policy because they did that. They did a lot of that in the first week, and that stuff was out there for sure. But I actually think uh, they did they didn't step they didn't take the they took the boot off her throat too soon, right? Like they needed to drive the negatives harder and with a clearer sense of what the stakes were for voters if she was reelected. What, as Scott was saying, what was at risk for them with their pension, with their health care, exactly what was going to happen if you ended up 
uh, with her as premier again. And so I think that some of the discussion internally and some of the, and we actually touched on this as well around the debate was how much of that do you put in the leader's voice? And it's hard because, you know, I was talking with, with folks on the campaign about this and it's difficult to advise that you do that necessarily in the leader's voice and particularly with female leader that can come with some strong downsides. So I think, I think a decision was made that that would be mostly in voice of God through the advertising campaign, maybe, and maybe that wasn't the right mix at the end of the day. But to me, I think, I think the important question is how, how did those negatives play out? And was there an opportunity there for them to push them more effectively in order to actually bring Daniel Smith's history into the campaign in a meaningful way. Let me just stick with you for one. Let me just stick with you for one moment, Jordan. Which is, I saw a tale of 2015 in this election campaign, and it's in the corporate tax increase. Right yeah. now, the NDP put that in there because they needed the revenue to project a balanced budget in their platform. Right. When are you going to stop making this fucking mistake? Is that a, is that a burden of, <laughs> we were we were too centrist to win? I don't know. Like, yeah. Well, no, I I don't think I don't think that in and of itself is a mistake because time after time, you know, in campaigns for New Democrats, it's clear that like voters need to know how the New Democrats plan to pay for things. That those no, commitments are not they are not read the same way coming from New Democrats as they are from conservatives or liberals. So New Democrats rarely have the luxury of saying, just trust us on fiscal management. So they absolutely did need to put in the window some proof points about fiscal management. That was a weak point for them. And if you look at the menu of options, it's for sure that corporate tax rate is the lowest pain point for doing so. Now, where they may have done better on this is drawing some really direct lines about where that revenue was going to go and what you were going to get for that and telling a story around that that would make it clear why that was happening. Because as it stood, it was sort of hanging out there on its own and that allowed it to become a point for an attack to be clipped right onto it uh, that was very effective. Now, I don't think that that piece in and of itself made a difference as we've discussed by the time that that came out, I think that things... Uh, were pretty much baked but I also don't think that they could they can't just go with you know so the UCP didn't have a platform the NDP didn't really have a platform either but they had they had commitments and they had some sense of how they were going to pay for it and I think that if you take away their the idea that they were going to have some story about how they were going to pay for stuff I think that the attacks would be even worse so I'm not sure I think you're confusing economic and fiscal and I don't think that people are wound up about a fiscal story. I think they are worried about an economic story. And I think far more than that, I'm not convinced that the tax cuts hurt them as much as uh, that pod suggested, but I do think the absence of an economic story, in fact, the fear on the part of the NDP mm-hmm. campaign when the issue of the economy would arise and they would run in the other direction and say, healthcare, healthcare, Danielle Steele's crazy, Danielle Steele. <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. Danielle Smith. Yeah, she's a very uh, successful author. <laughs> I, uh, I just... You know, I, I I don't fiscal doesn't e- equal economic. It did for about fifteen years, and it doesn't anymore. Well, look, yeah. Well, uh, there may be some validity to that point. Yeah, I don't think that anyone needs to put out a cost of platform. I think that is a a nineteen nineties view of campaigning. Um, you know, the last two provincial election campaigns uh, in Ontario, we didn't put out a platform. 
like we put out what our five priorities were, but, and, you know, had people coming in my office, you know, pounding their fists on my desk saying, we must put out a, you know, an economist approved uh, a total budget of, you know, what we're spending and what we're doing and, and fuck all that. Like we did on election day, yeah. uh, put out something, but on election day, like not, not before that, like it, it you don't yeah. have to do that. And, and the economic stuff is really, I like, couldn't agree more with you, Scott. Like, you need to have an economic uh, narrative. You need to be credible on that, and and the fiscal stuff is is uh, an accounting practice. And the public are not obsessed with balancing budgets. Like they just aren't. Like they're they. You know, I, I've the numbers of people who want to see the economy doing well is very high. The number of people who give a shit whether the budget's balanced or not in the context of headlines coming from the US. And they and don't think those two things are related. They do not think they, those they two things are related. They don't draw a line between those two for sure. Yeah. So but Corey, I think you know, you know, like those that is that is an argument that is heard very differently coming from New Democrats than it is coming from conservatives. Well, I I don't think you Context lost on, on whether on you balance I yeah, but I you know, I think that's just that's uh an obsession with insecurities of, and, and a, but a, mis, a fundamentally a misread of where the public is in terms of how they view that stuff. You know, I, I, I like what you said, uh, you know, many weeks ago when we were talking about this, that that uh, uh, the NDP were selling Buckley's cough syrup and and the UCP is selling Hawkins cheesies. And, you know, guess guess which one people want to eat more of like uh, Hawkins cheesies all the way, man. Like it's it's it, it, you know, the 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 just transition sort of notion of how the the use uh, the NDP would manage the economy in Alberta is just it's so bitter and and such terrible tasting medicine that nobody wants to have it. Yeah, but that's those are where the problem this, was. These are separate things. It's not as some well, oblique like, corporate like, taxes. How many people are paying corporate taxes? Like uh, you know, some entrepreneurs and some some business people who'd have an awareness of that stuff but you know most working albertans aren't in and corporate uh, are, are not uh, sensitive to corporate tax rates i would say the big i would say the big takeaway from this election about the ndp and it applies in ontario to the ndp and i think it applies nationally to the ndp is not that you're seen as fiscally irresponsible um it's that people don't think the ndp grows the economy People don't think the NDP generates uh, activity in the economy, jobs, growth. And that is the vulnerability. And you can't win an election if people don't believe you can do that. Um, even all the other things were standing. I mean, I, I felt that very strongly in 2014 with Kathleen. We had a significant edge over the Conservatives on job creation. Lost all the other economic metrics, but had a significant advantage on job creation. I think you've got to own a piece of the economy if you're going to form a government. Yeah, I don't it disagree. If your opponent says they're going to cut 100,000 jobs, though. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what I was going to say. I feel like in 2014, <laughs> that was maybe like a bit of a different uh, circumstance. But look, I mean, I think looking to... Well, if he future, hadn't done that, it would have been closer. Mm-hmm. Like, let's, put it, let's make it clear, right? Okay, but let's let's pursue that. Like, what is what is the economic narrative that you feel that the NDP could have put forward in terms of generating economic activity that wouldn't have triggered? Uh, I, a sorry, it's not a, sorry, it's not a fault of the campaign. I wasn't saying yeah. that there's something different they should have done the campaign. I'm talking about positioning the party I, and I, whether I, or not the party yeah. needs to find some way to position itself with the electorate in a way that it's seen as job creator party. I, I, yeah, I, I don't disagree th- with that. I, I would, I would run, yeah. run 
lean towards the right on on management of the energy sector is what I would have done if I were Notley. I would say that I'm going to go to to Trudeau and I'm going to fight for for higher uh, oil and gas production in uh, in Alberta, and I'm going to do that because it's going to make the world cleaner overall if we're exporting more from here because our oil is cleaner and more ethical than other people's. I would actually I would run an Ezra Levant uh, narrative on the economy, and then say, and also we'll be sensitive on hospitals and education and other things. But like in, in how you win those those people whose whose home value and their employment is affected by the energy industry, if it looks like you're going to shut it down, I just don't know if any other message is going to be strong enough to to, to trump it. There's got to be a button we push for a gigantic chorus of car horns go off when somebody mentions Ezra Levant, isn't there? Like, don't we have that rule? All right, moving right along. All right, Gordon Pinsent, where are you, man? Ladies and gentlemen, please return to your seats. The hey yous are about to begin. All right, who's got a hey you? I do. Do it. I want. I want to do a hey you to Steve Outhouse. I've uh, done one before for him on the way in. Uh, I think it, it's uh, you know you guys have been in this position like we've all we've all been in this position before where where the, certainly the narrative going in when he decided to take on the mantle was that the UCP was in a you know con- controlled flight into terrain mode at the time, and uh, he decided to to step up and put his name on the line and to take on a what I think was a very challenging set of circumstances uh, and to do it in a province where he's not campaigned much before uh, and to kind of go in and, and lead a team that was not all people of his own choosing. So like, I, I think it was a really ballsy move on his part to do it. And uh, uh, to the victor go the spoils. Like I hope that uh, Steve goes on and gets a whole bunch of work at the back end of this because uh, he's certainly fucking earned it. Why? How much do we have to pay him to stay out there and run her office? I mean, like his version uh, of her is by far well, the best version of yeah, her that we've yeah. seen. I was just going to say, if, if, if I were Danielle, I would be I would be rolling out the welcome mat and, and showing how great life in Alberta can be if uh, you're Steve Outhouse. Because, you know, uh, he did a, I know it's more than just Steve. I know it's a whole team of people, as we all know, but... Uh, for him to take on on that that public role and and that leadership role is uh, was a brave thing to do at the time, and he did a fucking great job. So well done, Steve. All right, Scott, who are you shouting out at? Um, yeah, I'm going to go call it kind of weird policy wank a little bit on you here for a minute. Uh, there's really? a study in today's Globe and Mail that's cited by three academics from Carleton that questions um, inherently questions whether. Everyone's assumption that a higher, much higher immigration levels necessarily results in much better economic outcomes. There's a housing crisis across the country, but particularly in our cities of Toronto and Vancouver, that seems to be almost intractable. Like there doesn't appear to be a policy remedy that fixes it. And the depth of the complexity of the problem is just mind boggling from you can't get materials, you can't get workers, you can't get zoned, uh, on and on and on. And and there's a mayor's race happening in the city of Toronto um, where there's a, a, a kind of a side discussion around all that Toronto was asked to do. And inherent to that discussion is we are a magnet for all of those new Canadians who are arriving and all the services that are required. And so I say this, we've commented from time to time on this pod, how there is, um, I think, genuinely an admirable consensus in Canada among its political elite and all political parties uh, that favors immigration. Uh, we have a declining population in the absence of immigration. It is vital to us. Um, but federal government, like 
if you only write a number on a page and say, this is next year's bigger number, that is not enough. And I know that's a simplification. I'm being reductive in terms of what the federal role is, but I think there's a vast, vast need for greater services in terms of landing, in terms of integration, in terms of support. Got to be supporting our cities better. We got to be supporting our biggest cities better. We got to be supporting our provinces better. Like the reality is that that consensus that we treasure so greatly will fracture. There will be more reports of this kind. There will be more questions of it. There will be less interesting, less thoughtful, less academic questions of it. It will become a point of political confrontation. That will be ugly. And if you don't think that we can end up in the kinds of debates that are happening in the United States, just sit back and do sweet fuck all and watch and see. Yeah, I find that's a great hey you because I'm super interested in watching the mayoralty that there are a number of candidates that are angry that Ford doesn't give Toronto more money or doesn't fucking take over the Gardner or something like this. But really, I, I am quite surprised that nobody's wheeled on Trudeau and said, why don't you help us with the 250,000 people that are moving in here every year? Anyway, Jordan, hey you. Well, first, uh, to mirror Corey, Shout out a little bit of love going out to to Nathan and Brian and everybody who ran a a really excellent campaign in Alberta, though the result was unfortunately not what everybody was hoping for. But the campaign itself had a lot of really amazing fundamentals. And I think there's going to be some great lessons learned for everybody in that. So thank you for your work. But my shout out this week, my Hey You goes to the NDP caucus. particularly around their opposition day and the vote about uh, Johnson stepping down. So I think everybody's probably feeling pretty good that they got into the cycle on the story last week and that Jigmeet somehow managed managed to thread the needle on the confidence question and on this topic. But my hey you is don't be fooled. (laughs) This issue is not helpful for you. This is not a good place to be. Uh, you know, Coletto had some numbers out, like only a third of people had even heard of this report. Like this, voters are not, don't care about this issue. The economy is still where it's at. Uh, the risk of new, new rate, rate hikes coming from the Bank of Canada means that troubles on the horizon for people in their home finances. This is only going to get more acute over the summer and into the fall. Please don't be distracted. Stay focused on these issues. Um, there will be a reward for the party that can own them and do not leave it to Pierre Polyev to own that, to own housing. It's a mistake. Excellent. Hey, you as well. My, my, hey, you goes out to the war rooms that are working for the Toronto mayoralty candidates other than Olivia Chow. And my, hey, you is you all suck. You're terrible. She's leading. She's been leading the whole campaign. Her lead grows with every poll. And I've not heard as a citizen one reason why I shouldn't vote for her. And surely a person who's been hanging around NDP municipal politics for as long as she has, has said some things, taken some positions that she wouldn't want to be defending right now. And I can't believe that you campaigns are not finding those things and hanging them around her neck so that she at least has to jog a little to win this goddamn thing. Anyway, War Rooms, pick up your game. All right. Thank you three for being here. This was fun today. Great to see you, as always. And I hope I'm in better shape physically next time we, next week when we, uh, when we gather. 
Uh, I want to thank, obviously, everybody who watched or listened to the show. I want to thank our presenting sponsor, TELUS, and our sponsor, CN. And I want to, heads up, public service announcement. CFL season starts this week. First games of the regular season are this coming weekend. Saskatchewan plays their arch rival, Edmonton. Tune in. Sports season is back in Canada. All right, everybody. We'll see you next week with more of the Curse of Politics. Until then, take care of yourselves.